Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. On this episode, we chatted with Aaron Blankstein, core engineer from Blockstack. Blockstack is a decentralized computing network which makes it simple for developers to build a blockchain-based applications. We learn about Blockstack's incentive system and what will be changing from V1 to V2. We discuss a few use cases of Blockstack, like the Blockstack naming service or BNS. We also go over Blockstack's smart contract language clarity and the broad tooling that will exist for developers working on the platform. We finish up learning about Aaron's fascination with augmented reality and adversarial machine learning. Hope you enjoy this one. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. Thanks. Hey, everyone. You've got Vikram here from Quantlayer. I'm also joined by Faison, known as The Wizard. Our guest today is Aaron Blankstein, core engineer from Blockstack. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Yeah, thank you for having me. Could you introduce yourself a little bit? I know you have an academic background, so I'd love to understand how you moved from academia to the blockchain industry. Yeah, sure. So like you said, uh, I came from an uh, academic background. I uh, came out of a PhD program uh, at Princeton, which a couple of other people from the Blockstack team came from. But I was in grad school, I guess, from 2010 to 2017, something like that. During that time, I remember reading like, the Bitcoin white paper and thinking that it was like a very cool paper, like the technology was interesting to me. But ultimately, I was like pretty skeptical of the point of the whole thing. Like I was pretty skeptical of cryptocurrencies. I was kind of skeptical of the crypto space at that point in time. But then sort of as I was uh, nearing, I guess, my thesis defense in grad school, I had a desire at that point explore like opportunities outside of academia when I was exploring what I was going to do next. And that's when uh, Blockstack come across my radar and talking to the team at that time, talking to people like Muneeb, I got a pitch about Blockstack's vision for the internet, which was basically an, an internet where applications served their users rather than serving up their users. And I think that that vision that they had and, and we still have, it really resonated with me. And, and sort of once that resonate, once that resonation started, it uh, I was hooked. Yep. Um, just curious, there seems to be a strong Princeton connection with Bitcoin and blockchain. We spoke to uh, Professor Ed Felton a couple weeks back. And just curious there, how did that kind of get started? And how does Princeton have such a strong connection and interest in the space? Yeah, so I guess that probably has to do with a couple like uh, structural advantages. I think Princeton's computer science department might have over some other computer science departments. So one of them is there's this institute at Princeton called uh, the Center for Information and Technology Policy, which Ed Felton was the head of for quite some time. And what this institute sort of does is it like brings together grad students from a variety of backgrounds, but mostly computer science, math, and policy. 
And when you get all of those kinds of people together at the same time, they become interested in a lot of different topics. But over the last decade, I think like one of the most interesting things that's happening at the confluence of computer science and policy has been cryptocurrencies. So you see like a really natural growth from there. Gotcha. I think a comment that you made, uh, I was listening to a few of your interviews in the past, a comment you had made in the past I thought was pretty interesting and also very, um, you know, it's very obvious kind of in retrospect that blockchain shouldn't be thought about as a replacement for databases. Would love to dig into that and understand how that plays a role in what Blockstack is working on. Yeah, sure. So when I say that blockchains shouldn't be thought of as sort of a drop-in replacement for databases... I think at the first level, sort of the superficial level, blockchains behave very differently than a traditional database. Like a traditional database, you're measuring throughput and latency in terms that are just like ridiculous compared to what you would measure them for on a blockchain, right? Like the throughput of a SQLite database on a single computer with the solid state drive is measured in tens of thousands of operations per second, which is just like not something that you can achieve in kind of this like decentralized network. So that's, I guess, at sort of this superficial level. Going like sort of more fundamental than that, what blockchains are is really a way for mutually distrusted parties to arrive at consensus about something, right? Which is different than what people use databases for. Like you could maybe look at consensus protocols like fault tolerance protocols, but really even fault tolerance protocols that most people think about, like the traditional, like, I guess, like zookeepers of the world and whatever Google locking systems, things like that. Even those aren't always meant to function in those kinds of environments. So it's a very different kind of technology. And then I think that the way that that informs Blockstack in particular is that we kind of accept that realization very early in the design of the Blockstack network and the Blockstack ecosystem. So a lot of our developer tooling, a lot of our applications, they try very hard to interact with the blockchain sort of as minimally as possible Mm -hmm. to still build these sort of like limited privilege applications. It's interesting because we work with, again, it's a different use case clearly, but along the lines of what you're saying, where we don't really need to necessarily know what's happening at the kind of lower level, like we work with AWS, for example, and uh, it's very easy for us to uh, build apps on top of AWS, you know, file storage, identity management, um, security, and so forth. But we don't really know exactly what they're doing on their end. And I think as a developer, that's really nice because you can be comfortable with the area that you're working in, not have to worry about like what's going on underneath. Yeah, definitely. And I think that The way that a lot of our developer tooling is designed is with that kind of interaction in mind. So if you use our Blockstack JS library to build an application, for most kinds of applications that developers are actually building, they're able to build their entire application, add almost all of the features that they want to that application without ever really needing to dig in and figure out what's going on at the blockchain layer. 
But say for purposes of just kind of understanding block stack better, we definitely want to talk about the tooling in a bit. We'd love to understand the kind of fundamental part of block stack as well. So what is the relationship between block stack and Bitcoin? There's some connection there. We'd love to understand that better. Yeah. So there's kind of, uh, I guess there's sort of two answers here. So one is in the current version of the stacks blockchain, all stacks operations themselves are encoded as uh, Bitcoin transactions, right? So the metadata of the stacks transaction is embedded within the metadata field of a Bitcoin transaction. Mm-hmm. And the property that this gives us is it gives us a view of the stacks blockchain, which is uh, totally ordered on the Bitcoin level. So that's the sort of the version one of the Stacks blockchain. Mm-hmm. You can kind of think of it as running on top of Bitcoin today. Yeah, the Stacks blockchain still has the potential for forks and things like that that are independent of Bitcoin, but it's using Bitcoin to achieve ordering. And what is uh, important about ordering? Why do we need to see that? Right. So ordering is kind of the it's kind of the fundamental thing that a blockchain provides its users or its participants. And the reason, I guess, the, the sort of the easiest example you can see for like why ordering is so important is the double spending problem, right? So if you think of Bitcoin, the sort of the fundamental problem that it's trying to solve is like, how do you do implement currency exchange in a open and untrusted way? Right. Like, how do I send money from myself to Bob? And the answer isn't as simple as, well, you know, if I sign a transaction from myself to Bob, then now Bob has this money because I always have the possibility of signing a second transaction to Charlie and claiming that actually that second transaction is the valid one, not the first one. So at some level, the blockchain needs to resolve which of those two transactions was the first one that was sent, because that's the valid one. So we have the Stacks chain, and how does consensus on that chain work, and what what's like the incentive system there? Yeah, so again, I guess there's kind of two possible ways to answer this. So one is the blockchain that we have today, and the second is the sort of the Stacks blockchain that we're currently implementing and designing, like Stacks v2. So first I'll answer V1 because its consensus algorithm is pretty straightforward. And then I'll talk a little bit about V2. So in V1, uh, the way that consensus works is every single transaction that is consensus bearing encodes in its metadata a consensus hash, which is a computed Merkle hash over all of the data in the Stacks blockchain up to that point. And then that itself is broadcasted in a Bitcoin transaction. So you could have a fork at the Bitcoin layer, which would result in a Stacks blockchain fork. And then additionally, you could have a fork in the Stacks layer where one person has one view of the current Stacks state and one person has a different view, in which case they would end up with different consensus hashes and their transactions would be ignored by one another. And that's more or less how Stacks v1's consensus is determined. Mm-hmm. Now, in Stacks v2, we're moving to a system in which Stacks transactions and Stacks operations themselves are independent of the Bitcoin blockchain. 
And instead, the Bitcoin blockchain is merely used to perform a single leader election. And then once the single leader election has occurred for some epoch, this leader is in charge of forming a block and appending it to the chain tip, the stacks chain tip of their choosing. Gotcha. And can that be thought of as kind of uh, just that particular transaction, I guess, or interaction with Bitcoin? That's kind of a second layer type of interaction. Why is that still required? We'd love to understand this kind of leader and leader election concept better. Yeah. So there's a couple things that using Bitcoin to aid in our leader election helps solve. So one is that if you're doing a leader election, it's very, very important that every participant in the leader election has the same view of uh, candidates basically potential to be the next leader, right? So every candidate announces their candidacy. They also burn an underlying Bitcoin or an underlying cryptocurrency, in this case, Bitcoin, to indicate like their desire to be the leader. This also ensures that leaders have skin in the game in case they operate as bad players, try to assemble bad blocks, start forks, things like that. There's kind of a punishment involved because they're burning and they're not going to receive a reward. So what Bitcoin provides us is a global view of all of the would-be participants so that when you are trying to like reboot from the Genesis block, say, everybody can agree that the elections selected the same sort of sequence of leaders. Okay. And what are the benefits of being a leader? Like what's the economic incentive? Yeah, so there's a couple of incentives. So one is that when you're elected a leader, you get block rewards. So there's a mining reward in stacks. And additionally, there's also transaction fees for any transactions that you're including in your block. You get to accept those transaction fees. So that's like the immediate economic incentives. And then there's secondary incentives for being a miner, which mean, you know, you get to assemble blocks and there's there's some power in being able to do that. And what are the kind of economics there when you assemble blocks, you get you get what, I guess, stack tokens or um, how, how should we think about that? Yeah, so you get uh, stacks tokens, basically, so long as you're advancing the blockchain, like you get stacks tokens as a Coinbase reward, similar to how a Bitcoin miner will receive Bitcoin for assembling a block. Got it. I uh, would love to talk through a little bit about some kind of use cases. So Blockstack, I think one of the current use cases is the Blockstack naming system, which is kind of like uh, DNS, I guess. Yeah. So the primary use for the current blockchain is BNS, the Blockstack naming system, which provides something very similar to DNS. Like it has a lot of the same features as DNS. I guess the additional feature that it has over DNS is that it associates each name with a public key at the time of the name's registration, mm-hmm. rather than in DNS today, like we're in this situation where we need like certificate authorities, all those kinds of wonky business. And DNS, that's not the case. Like there's a public key. Because of this, DNS is actually uh, very useful 
for cases that DNS is not typically used for, right? So in Blockstack applications today, all users, when they interact with applications, they identify themselves with a BNS name, right? So if I'm using some application and other people want to find me on it, I'm just Aaron.id, and that allows for a decentralized system of identifying other users and also looking up data about those users. And do those names like Aaron.id, does that, is that actually what it is or is it like a hash associated with that name? Like if I'm looking for you, would I type in Aaron.id or would I have to know something more about you? Yeah. So it's exactly that. You would look up Aaron.id and under the hood, the Blockstack peer network would be able to correspond Aaron.id with some blob of data that tells you like where to find my public user data. And then it would also give you the hash of a public key that would say, this is the sort of authoritative public key for Aaron.id. Gotcha. And as far as other use cases, so we have the BNS. What are some other interesting use cases now? Yeah, so I think that there are a number of use cases that I think that we're still sort of coming to terms with as like really an ecosystem. But I think when the Stacks version two of the blockchain uh, launches, it's going to enable a new smart contracting language called Clarity, right. in which people will be able to define new smart contracts that are going to extend the functionality of the Blockstack network really in ways that like we're not going to be able to expect. But with kinds of, I guess, in the beginning, it'll be sort of the things that you see in other smart contracting ecosystems. Got it. Would love to talk more about, I'm glad you brought it up because wanted to talk more about um, clarity and, you know, what the language can do, what it can't do, you know, where it derives. Like, if, I think it's Lisp based or very similar to Lisp. Yeah, it's a uh, Lisp variant. You can think of it as Lisp with types, but without recursion. Okay. So, yeah, so clarity, it's a programming language that I think the sort of one of the chief there are really two chief design decisions going into Clarity. So one is that we wanted it not to be a compiled language. And what we meant by compiled is that the code that is your smart contract, the code that you as the developer are writing, should be broadcast essentially directly on the blockchain, right? So in your smart contract publishing transaction, you should be publishing the actual source code. And that should be the ground truth of what your smart contract is trying to achieve. And that's so others can audit the code? That's so others can look at it and make sure that they are comfortable integrating it with it as well? Or is there another reason? So that's one reason. But the big reason was that we're very worried about, I guess, this, this problem of compilers in the blockchain space, which is that if you have a compiled language and you have smart contract developers that are testing their language on their computer, they're getting it audited, they're combing over all of the details of it. Um, they're really doing that on the source code. And so they're getting guarantees about their source code, not the compiled code so much. Got it. And if there's, if there's like a bug in the compiler, that'll introduce a bug in the code that they are actually publishing on the blockchain, mm -hmm. but not the code that they've actually written. Right. 
And at that point, you, you have a situation where you maybe have like an almost irrecoverable problem for the blockchain. Because like if you had a bug in the compiler, right, it would mean that any smart contract anyone has ever published might now be broken. Yep. But it's not the case that you can know exactly which ones were broken and how. Right. And so it would be a very contentious hard fork if one were even possible. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty interesting and smart way to approach it because I think there are quite a few other blockchains that have compilers in associated with their smart contracts. I know it's difficult to say with certainty on why there may be compiler bugs or failures, but what hypothetically could be some common type of compiler issues that might show up? Oh, man. I mean, if you like just sort of it troll through, I guess, the issue reports on common compilers, <laughs> right? right. You, you see all kinds and they can range from like harmless to, you know, bugs in register allocation. So a bug in register allocation would mean that a variable that you think you're assigning to, you're actually assigning to a different variable. And then all bets are off. Oh boy. That yeah. sounds like when it's time to kind of uh, pack up your bags and move to a different blockchain, if, if you see that. <laughs> yes. So I guess no, uh, not compiled. And what's the other kind of second design decision? Yeah, the second big design decision, which probably has the most impact on the language itself, is the decision that we wanted a, a language that is non-turn complete, but for the reason that we wanted the any piece of code in Clarity, we wanted it to be possible to analyze the cost of evaluating that piece of code uh, without actually running it, right? So we wanted to be able to statically analyze the runtime and memory cost of any smart contract such that transactions broadcast on the network, mm -hmm. their transaction fees can be assessed without first running the code of those transactions. Got it. So basically, you, you have a lot more control with respect to planning, like you know how much this is going to cost and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. And you know how to assess uh, fees, right? So in Clarity and in the Stacks blockchain, there, would, there will still be a notion of gas fees where you're paying a, a higher fee for a more expensive to compute transaction. However, you won't have to do these tricks where you're like setting a, a fee rate and like a maximum fee and it's possible that your transaction could exceed it and abort, you won't have those kinds of problems. It'll be kind of like a, a single parameter that you're setting in your transaction, which is how much I'm paying for this transaction. And blockchain peers will be able to see the transaction. They'll know how much it costs to evaluate and they can decide whether or not that fee sufficiently covers it. Yeah, so we talked about clarity a little bit. That sounds super exciting. Just out of curiosity, what kind of time frame are you thinking um, V2, like testnet and then mainnet? I know it's always hard to make up, you know, I'm not saying this is a statement about it, but just kind of general time frame. What, do you, what are you thinking? Yeah, so Stacks V2 is in very active development at the moment. So clarity is uh, sort of at a point today where you can pull down um, the interpreter, you can pull down the static analysis engine um, and interact with them. You can write uh, smart contracts, interact with the database, um, things like that in like a local environment. It, if you really sort of squint at it, you could say it's a reg test environment. 
but really it's just a VM. So it's kind of in that state today, and we're hoping to launch public testnet soon. Yep. As far as a mainnet goes, I think that uh, that's probably a little bit further off, but kind of depends on a number of different factors. Okay. Moving on to a little bit uh, in terms of Gaia. So would love to understand this. So this is a decentralized storage system, if I'm understanding correctly. So would love to understand how it's kind of similar and different with uh, others like IPFS, for example. Yeah, sure. So Gaia is a decentralized storage system. And I think that the term decentralized storage system is a uh, Efficiently vague that it can encompass uh, really very disparate technologies. And I would say Gaia and something like IPFS are, are two examples of actually fairly different technologies. So from the view of Gaia, what is important about decentralized storage is that uh, users of applications are actually in control of where their data is being stored at any given point in time, right? So like they're in control of where their application data is going, not the application developer. Yep. And so Gaia is designed with that in mind. So what Gaia is, is really just a protocol that abstracts a bunch of different storage backends. So things like uh, AWS or GCP storage, or just a plain disk on a computer, it abstracts that away and allows uh, any application that's using the Blockstack.js library to perform writes and reads from Gaia storage as if it was just some unified backend. Yeah, and the, the sort of magic sauce of uh, Gaia is actually its interaction with BNS. So, I guess the, the reason that this is kind of magical is maybe best illustrated by an example. Okay, yeah. So let's say you have two users who are trying to use a decentralized application, and both of them have Gaia storages, Gaia storage buckets that are kind of independent of each other, right? Like I have a Gaia bucket, and Bob has a Gaia bucket, and they're totally unrelated things. So if we're trying to use the same application, let's say it's a Twitter clone or Google, some sort of document system, whatever. We're trying to use the same application and I'm trying to read some of Bob's data. Now, the decentralized application itself, it doesn't actually know how to tell my computer how to read Bob's data, right? This might be surprising because like in a centralized world, this isn't a problem at all. Like in a standard centralized system, uh, it's rather obvious how to get data from Bob to Aaron uh, because all of our data is stored in some server in California. So, you know, whoever requests it, this server in California will just give it to them. Very easy. In a decentralized app, it's kind of harder because the app itself is not like a central point of routing for all of our data. So instead what happens is my client, like my computer, uh, says, okay, I'm interested in Bob's application data. So it queries the blockchain network for Bob.id. Mm-hmm. Bob.id, the blockchain network sort of looks it up and says, okay, here's a public key associated with Bob.id. 
And here's a Gaia URL that you can use to find more data about Bob. At that point, my client gets that data and says, okay, I'm going to fetch that information from the URL specified by bob.id. Fetches the data from that URL, and then it uses that to sort of bootstrap uh, an index over all of Bob's data relevant to this particular application. And then my client can confirm that it actually came from Bob because it has bob.id's public key. So it can do signature verification and things like that at that point. Gotcha. And so the decentralized aspect of this storage system is that we don't really care if it's on AWS and GCP, but that's where the data is going to sit. Is that because we're worried about, you know, say we only use AWS, the risk is, you know, AWS shuts us down, I guess. But am I thinking about that right? Yeah, so the the aspect of this that's sort of decentralized is that lookup step, right? So the fact that I'm asking block the Blockstack network for where Bob.id's data is stored makes it decentralized because Bob.id is able to actually control and change that URL as needed, right? Like it could be a URL to Bob's server in some warehouse. It could be um an AWS URL, it doesn't really matter. And if the underlying storage there failed, only bob.id would be able to update that URL. Gotcha. And I guess it could even point to an IPFS URL? Uh, Correct. It could even point to uh, something like an IPFS URL. And then you'd be able to confirm that this IPFS data was actually written by Bob by matching it with the public key. Got it. And what's the connection between uh, Gaia and Atlas? I see, you know, there's this uh, Atlas network in your documentation. Yeah, so the connection between Gaia and Atlas is, so when I query the blockchain for data about bob.id, I get a URL and a public key, right? Uh, This is actually in the grand scheme of data, quite a lot of data, because we're packing trying to pack all this information in the uh, metadata field of Bitcoin transactions. So trying to pack it into basically op returns along with some other stacks, transaction data, like a consensus hash, things like that. And bytes become very expensive there. In order to offload some of the burden of those bytes, what's actually being stored there instead of the URL is a hash of that name data. So it's like a hash of all of this data that's associated with bob.id. Well, that's great. That sort of solves your byte storage problem. But now you have a different problem, which is clients don't actually know how to reverse that hash. And so what we have is an Atlas network, which is a peering network, which essentially exists simply to reverse that hash. Got it. So we talked a little bit about that. I would also love to talk about authentication and how it works within Blockstack, because there seems to be a good amount of emphasis, which I think is a good thing in the docs, because it's a very important feature of the system, but would love to understand how that works. Yeah, so authentication, I think it's kind of highlighted in a lot of our documentation and things like that, because it's it's one of the first like challenges, I think, that an application developer has to overcome to write an application. Yep. That's so true. Yeah. Like you have to get users signed in and you have to display the user's data. So in Blockstack, authentication happens in 
a totally decentralized way. Um, you can kind of think of it like a decentralized OAuth. And the way that authentication works in Blockstack is basically I get to an application. It'll show me a button like, hey, sign in with Blockstack. I click the button. At this point, it initiates a protocol check and sort of like wait loop in which a Blockstack authenticator app or Blockstack browser, something like that can hook in to the authentication phase and get the request, like initiating request for the authentication flow from the application. So what the application will do is it's packaging up basically like a little JSON blob that says, hey, I'm application foo uh, located at blockstackapp.com and I'm interested in trying to sign in a user. That JSON blob gets passed to the Blockstack browser. The Blockstack browser will display like a pretty standard sort of line, uh, login dialog if the user already has a Blockstack account. And they'll click like either approve or reject uh, the sign-in. You know, the sign-in can ask for a couple different kinds of permissions, things like writing to your Gaia Hub, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. When the user approves that, what actually happens is the Blockstack browser takes the JSON packaged request from the application. It signs it using the user's private key, passes some additional information like the user's profile information, where the user's Gaia data is stored, things like that, signs it and then sort of returns it back to the application, which can then handle that request and also validate the signatures on it by querying the blockchain. And that private key, that's stored on the device that's being logged into, or where is that? Correct. So it's stored on the user's browser, essentially. So if you're signing in through your phone, it would be stored on that device. If you're signing in on your computer, it's it's stored on your computer. And is there any worry, uh, just so I understand like how this works with respect to the tokens, is there any worry about self-custody of, like, I'll need some of these tokens to interact with the Blockstack network, right? Because this private key is stored on the user's browser. Are there any worries about, about that? Yeah, so I think that the... There's a couple of things going on. So one is that this private key that's actually signing the sign-in uh, request or the authentication request, it's usually different than the private key that would be used for, say, holding tokens or okay. Bitcoin or really anything else. It's a different derived path in a standard hierarchical derivation wallet. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the first level at which that problem is addressed. Secondly, I think that ultimately, as these kinds of identifiers uh, become more important to users, I think like even that solution is kind of not adequate, right? Like Mm -hmm. being stored on their browsers, that's just like not a 100% secure way to store private keys for really any reason. And I think that like as the import of those private keys grows, other solutions will have to exist. And that could be things like sign in using a hardware wallet. So if you have a Trezor, you have a Ledger, something like that, you can use that to participate in the authentication protocol as well, because really all you're doing is like signing with a ECDSA key. Mm -hmm. 
and other approaches like, you know, cell phone assisted sign in, things like yep. that. Got it. So we'd love to talk about the co- tooling that exists now. So we have some JavaScript tools. Radix is something. We'd love to talk kind of about that whole ecosystem of tools that exist for you guys. Yeah. So as broadly speaking, we have like the sort of fundamental developer toolkits of which Blockstack.js is probably the most complete. So it's a JavaScript library that that gives you sort of the, the fundamental tools that you need to build a Blockstack app that like interacts with Gaia and handles user sign-in. So the interface that you have for interacting with user data is basically you're able to do simple gets and puts on a single user at a time's data, right? Mm-hmm. So if I want to look up Bob's data, that's like a single get. But if I want to look up like a group of users' data, like that's kind of awkward to assemble in Blockstack.js. Yep. And that's where Radix comes in. So Radix is a library for indexing public data in Blockstack apps, right? So if every user is kind of building up like a structured view of their public data, so you can imagine something like a photo sharing app where every user has like some public bucket of photo data mm-hmm. in order to assemble like a public feed of all of these public images, you would need to do some indexing over each user's Gaia bucket. And the reason that's like indexing is because, again, these Gaia storage locations, they're heterogeneous. So they could be anywhere. They could be different for each user. And so it's, it's kind of like an indexing problem rather than like a database problem. Yep. And what are some of the complexities here that make it easier or better to use Radix over like a, like a third-party tool like Elastic or something like that? Yeah, so I think that the a lot of the complexities that you're going to face if you try to sort of roll your own solution to this indexing are really complexities that kind of have already been handled by Radix. So, you know, you have to have, figure out a way to like expose labels to your data so that the indexer is able to process them in sort of a unifying way. Okay. And then you need to set up a front end for interacting with these indexes. Yeah. Gotcha. So we're just looking at app.co. That's basically where there's a bunch of Blockstack applications right now. Which do you think, I mean, obviously there's tons of great apps here, but um, are there any in particular that you think are worth kind of digging into and checking out because they give a pre- they have a pretty good, you know, they've used the infrastructure pretty well? Yeah. You know, I ultimately hate to play favorite with um, Blockstack apps. Sure. So we'll try to be a little... Yeah, we can be as vague as you... But I think these sort of the applications that that I've liked the most or interacted the most with have been like sort of simple task management or note-taking applications and other applications like document sharing applications, like things like Graphite, you know, I've found very useful for myself. Great. Along the documentation lines, first off, like I think you guys have really awesome documentation, just docs.blockstack.org. So when V2 hits, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, what some major differences are going to be. I imagine that the docs will get updated as well. Yeah. So the uh, the docs should be updated as well as really any changes to our platform roll out. Our docs should get updated. I think one of the other sort of hopes is that as a team have spent a lot of time on this documentation and, you know, I'm glad that you like it. But uh, one of our hopes is that like 
as our platform matures, we keep in mind that the pain in updating documentation yeah. <laughs> is not so much like as painful as that might be. It's much more painful for the application developers that have to not just like update the documentation, but like read the new documentation and then like right. determine themselves like, wait a second, like, is my whole app broken now? Yeah. Uh, and so we're going to try, I think, to minimize the consequences of our actions as, as a platform uh, yeah. for our users. That will keep the users very happy, I'm sure. Yeah. But I guess uh, another way to answer that is that for a lot of the changes that are coming in our platform, you can find descriptions of those in our white paper. So mm-hmm. in addition to docs.blocksec.org, we have documentation on sort of the future of the platform. If you go to blocksec.org slash papers, or if you check our improvement proposals uh, in our GitHub repositories, uh, you can kind of see a lot of what's coming down the pipe. So this is a question that we have been asking a lot of our guests at the end of podcasts. Outside of blockchain, what are some technologies that you're excited about that you're paying attention to? Maybe you're not like actively working in the space, but just some some interesting stuff. Yeah. So I think that there's two kinds of technologies that I find both like fascinating and I think people should be uh, paying maybe more attention to. So one is, I think... The future of augmented reality is like more present than anyone's really thinking about, right? So like already a lot of the ways that we as a society interact with other people within our society, are they're already intermediated so much through digital medium that I think like a transition to a world where people are primarily interacting with each other through like virtual reality and augmented reality. I think a transition to that kind of world is maybe like closer, more gradual and more subtle than we all are aware of. And I think that that's like kind of an interesting topic that probably people are going to explore more and more in the coming days. But I think the other technology that I, I just kind of find really fascinating from from like a technical perspective is a field called like adversarial machine learning, which is like the point of adversarial machine learning is to try to come up with or try to design inputs to machine learning models to break those machine learning models in sort of surprising (laughs) ways. So like, you know, I guess an example is, can you add like marks to a stop sign that to like a human eye maybe just look like the paint is peeling on the stop sign or something like that. But to a self-driving car, that makes the stop sign actually look like, say, a merge sign. Oh, boy. And this is like a very interesting field, I think, from just like a technical perspective, because the problems are kind of like fun and interesting in like maybe a mathy way. Um, But then it's like very highly disturbing when you think about the consequences for a society that's becoming more and more reliant on machine learning. All right. Well, Aaron, that conversation was a lot of fun. Really appreciate your time. How can listeners learn more about Blockstack, get in touch with you? Any Twitter links you want to let people know and whatnot? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I would say that the best source of information for Blockstack is just our website, blockstack.org. In terms of getting in touch with me, I think probably the easiest way to get my attention is through the Blockstack forums. So we have uh, forum.blockstack.org. 
I also have a Twitter account, but I check it very rarely. So if you try to at message me, uh, you might hear from me in a couple months. Okay. <laughs> it's probably the smart move. I, I, I'm on Twitter a little too much. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Aaron. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks. Thanks.